Welcome to the Recess Nurse Podcast. Elevating emergency nursing, one episode at a time. I'm your host, Yunsi Dursa. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Recess Nurse Podcast. I'm your host, Yunsi Dursa. Today's episode is a very candid conversation on having a hydromorphone-free emergency department with Sergei Motov. We had this discussion at the same time that we had the deep dive on ketamine discussion, but I wasn't able to air this because I ended up getting sick. Here it is today, and I really hope that you enjoy this episode. This will be part two. Uh, We're going to talk about a topic that you are very passionate about. So you talk about having a hydromorphone-free emergency department. So many questions come up. (laughs) (laughs) I can only only imagine. (laughs) So um, it's so appealing to me because we are now... When I, I haven't even been in nursing for that long. Um, I, nursing is a second career for me. But not too long ago, like maybe six years ago, to give one milligram of hydromorphone, either as a short bolus infusion or, um, or an IV push, it was like, oh, are you sure you want hydromorphone? One milligram? That's a lot. And now... I mean, I feel like we're prescribing hydromorphone like one, two milligrams every hour, it seems. Um, And to the point where there's a bit of a shortage. Um, (laughs) But, uh, (laughs) but, um, you know what, like, I, I, I understand that, okay, there's, it's more, it's a pure form. You have maybe, you know, some less side effects. Blah, blah, blah. But when I line up morphine and hydromorphone next to each other, we're looking at, okay, so like one milligram of hydromorphone is about, let's say, eight milligrams of morphine. Are people forgetting how powerful hydromorphone is? Beautiful beginning to very topic, as you mentioned, dear and, and important to me. Some people do forget. Majority of people never been educated. And there's a several root cause analysis to problem that we become so hydromorphonophobic and uh, I'm sorry, hydromorphonophilic and morphinophobic that this medication was basically thrown at us and said, use it. It's a great and safe alternative to morphine without actual clear explanation of equi-analgesic conversion. And most importantly, without explanation of great potency and lipophilicity or lipid solubility that hydromorphone possess in comparison to morphine. And people didn't pay attention to it. They were happy to have, look, it's a great medication. And you probably going to test as much as I am. There's this phenomenon that everybody observes in every ED in our country, that there is something mental about having given a single digit dose of opioid versus double. It's much easier for a nurse or physician to prescribe one, two, three, four, five, so six milligrams of hydromorphone than let's say 10 milligrams of morphine without understanding that two milligrams of hydromorphone equals 16 milligrams of morphine. Right. And like, and, and this is what I'm finding interesting. So sometimes I'll, you know, um, play devil's advocate and I say, 
you want to give two milligrams of hydromorphone as like, or even one milligram of hydromorphone for somebody who comes in as like a first, first medica- first line of medication to address pain, whatever the pain is. I'm like, you know, that's like, why don't I just give eight milligrams of morphine? And then they're like, oh no, you can't give eight milligrams of morphine. But I'm like, but that's basically what you're doing. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, so then, you know, and, and it just, you know, I, I just do it just to be like, hey, like, do you understand what you're you're prescribing? Because it just seems like a lot to me. And and that's like, you know, sometimes people are prescribing without even going to look at the patient and talking to the patient to see, you know, maybe there are some other medications. Maybe it is just simple, like, you know, I don't know, um, gastritis or something. And they don't even need morphine or hydromorphone. They just need some like pepsit, some famadidine. Um but I think we're injecting it like candy now. Um, how do we fix this? Well, you, you're absolutely correct. And um, this, you know, medical gaps in medical knowledge or pharmacological knowledge when it comes to hydromorphone, it's essentially mind-boggling. And frankly, it's very, very upsetting. Uh, there was one study done a few years ago that showed that 48%, just listen to this, 48% of ED attendings lack pharmacological understanding of validity, why they're using one opioid over another. So basically half of attending staff had no clue why they're using morphine over hydromorphone or why they're using hydromorphone over morphine, specifically related to lack of absolute uh, knowledge with respect to conversion and potency and such and such. That, that's horrific. How are you giving a medication and you're not understanding <clears throat> what this medication, medication can do to a patient in a, in a short and long term? staying in the emergency department. How do we fix it? Well, education is the must. We need to get a proper research that actually looking at the proper conversion and proper dosing of hydromorphone. So interesting, when hydromorphone was thrown on the market, the Purdue Pharma, the infamous Purdue Pharma, which was a maker of hydromorphone, still is, on a package insert, they put for intravenous dose, use one to two milligrams slow push over one to three minutes. Imagine this, the manufacturer of hydromorphone gives you the direction, one to two milligram, Slow push of one to three minutes. They got so much grief because in 2010, Pennsylvania uh, Board of Adverse Drug Effects reported 1,700 adverse effects related to hydromorphone, and about 75% were due to respiratory depression and naloxone reversal. Ginormous number. So they actually changed the package insert in 2010. And if you look at it, it says now, initial dosing should be 0.2-1 milligram given as a slow infusion over one to three minutes. Opioid naive patients should be kept naive when it comes to opioid, but if you ought to choose a hydromorphine, which you shouldn't, at least as a routinely, and definitely not as a first-line analgesic modality of choice, your initial dosing should be 0.2 to 0.4. Right. And let's see, if we convert 0.2 of hydromorphone, um, we're looking at, let me see if it's about eight. I'm trying to do the math here. I should be better at math because I'm a nurse. Um, <laughs> But that's what calculators are for. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Um, let me just do it real fast. So let's say you're looking at about like a two milligram morphine dose. You can start with, or you can do 0.4, which it goes to about four to five milligram of morphine, which is acceptable. Right. Once again, you know, you can always titrate. I'm a big proponent of opioid titration, which is frankly the only way to use opioids. Single dose of any opioid, morphine, hydromorphine, fentanyl, would not do the trick. 
It's been proven. It's been told. No matter how you tweak it, no matter how you dose it, weight-based fixed one dose doesn't work because opioids are titratable. So use it as such. But the best way to do it, start a lower dose. I don't think anybody should be getting 10 milligrams of morphine as a single intravenous push dose. It's too much for an opioid-naive patient. It's too much. So why don't you start with, a, I don't know, 5 times 2 t- Q10 minutes, or fine, you can give them 8 milligram loading dose, give it over slow infusion over 10 minutes and see what's going to happen. Or you can do 4 and 4. Same with the hydromorphone. Nobody needs 1 milligram of hydromorphone as a single IV push. Even more so 2. Start with 0.4, start with 0.5, half a dose, which is about 4 milligram to 5 milligram of morphine. Perfect. Ask this patient in 10 minutes, 15, if they feel better, good. If not, give another dose. Yeah, and I think that might be like the problem is how people are dosing. So let's like the time period, um, like when is the repeat dose? So I think part of the problem is, okay, so let's say you decide that you're a morphine uh, person versus a hydromorphone. So you give morphine four milligrams as a starting dose. Okay, um, do you... I think part of the problem is people wait four hours before giving like the next morphine dose. Absolutely. And, and I think that if you give four milligrams of morphine and then you say, okay, you know, I know for nursing, um, we have to actually do a pain reassessment, usually for IV doses, right about the 15 minute mark, 15 to 30 minute mark, there should be relief or no relief. At least, you know, it may not be a total relief, but there should be either there's change or no change. And if there's no change, then it's like, okay, they need more. But if there's some change, but there's no pain relief, which some people, there will be no pain relief, depending on what the problem is, um, then they just need like another dose. So they could always just get, if they say, okay, I come in with a pain of 10 and then uh, you give the four milligrams of morphine. Okay, now it's at eight. How do you feel? Do you feel like you need more or you feel like this is something you can live with? They're like, no, I, I need some more, but it's it's starting to go down. How much more would you give? Would you give another four milligrams of morphine or would you give another two milligrams of morphine? Another four. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. Another four. And what you said, it's so important. And I'm just going to reiterate with your permission, of course, titration at specified intervals based on morphine, hydromorphone, pharmacokinetic, and dynamic, it's crucial. Morphine kicks in with a maximum uh, concentration at 20 minutes, which means at 25 to 30 minutes, you should have an effect or no effect. Hydromorphone, a little sooner, maybe 15. So these are the times that, as you said, after single dose, patients should be reevaluated. And a beautiful question, as you said, would you like me to give up more pain medication? And if do, I would do another dose exactly the same. I don't have it. I don't think the half of the dose, two milligram, would do it. Anything else? Four and four, it's eight milligram. It's a decent dose. And the question is, what happens if for eight milligram morphine wouldn't work? Then what you do? Well, I think for me, if I, if after the two doses it's still not working, then you know I would also look at presentation. Like, is there something else that's maybe causing it? Um, that so like that would require more pain medication. So. Uh, is there some something going on? Is there a fracture? Is there an obstruction? Is there, um, you know, something else going on? Um, and then if if there's a high suspicion that there is something else going on, then I would probably give more. Um, but then I would also consider maybe, you know, something else. Like, is there, 
I think we actually need to do more multiple modality treatments. Um, but I'm not smart enough to know what all those are. <laughs> oh, I agree with you 100%. <clears throat> and I would do exactly the same thing. I was more alluding to the fact is what if, let's say, you give three doses of morphine. You know, as we all know, the beautiful part of morphine, hydromorphone and even fentanyl is they're pure mu receptor agonists. The lack analgesic ceiling, which means it can titrate up and up and up until two things happen. Pain becomes optimized and patient says, Doc, it's enough, or they stop breathing. Well, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a bad way of saying it. I'm sorry. The side effects become intolerable and you need to stop or intervene. But the question is, you give them three doses of morphine, let's say, four and four and four or five and five and five. And we're getting close to 15 to 20 milligram mark and I'm not feeling any better. Then the question is, would you consider an opioid? And if yes, which one? And some people will switch to hydromorphone. But my point is only again is hydromorphone is not any different than morphine. Only the difference with potency, but you're already at 15. So you need to choose either the most potent opioid that we have, which is fentanyl. Problem with fentanyl, it's a short leaf. You need to treat it more frequency or frequently. But what you said is a golden point. Then you need to consider switching or adding to non-opioid analgesic modalities and then reassess the patient and see what's there that precluding them from actually feeling better. Yeah, and actually you brought up a very good point. Um, so people would say, okay, after I gave um, morphine two to three doses, you know what, that's not really working and now I'm going to give hydromorphone. And I think this is like exactly the point of why we're having this discussion. Um, giving hydromorphone is not any different than giving morphine. So if you want to give one of hydromorphone after you gave, let's say, uh, 12 milligrams of morphine. I mean, now you can just add, <laughs> add another eight. So now you're at 20 milligrams of morphine. Um, and I, I think like, I don't know what it is that sometimes there's like a disconnect that like, you know, um, giving hydromorphone may not be the best solution. Um, you just, if you calculate just under morph, unless you're calculating with the morphine and you understand how much you're actually giving. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. Exactly. See, but not everybody understands that once you convert hydromorphone to morphine milligram equivalents, then everything be, uh, becomes very, very clear. There is a need to give eight milligram of hydromorphone, one milligram of hydromorphone, which is eight milligram of morphine, on top of 12 of morphine. If 12 didn't work, I agree with you 100%. Then you need to look for something else. That's, that's, that's a very good point for our listeners to convey, to understand, and to pass along to their fellow colleagues. Right. And I like how you described it um, with the mood receptors. It's, you know, either you're going to reach that optimal feeling of pain relief or, you know, you, you just don't and, and they stop breathing. And it's very true because we see it all the time. And, 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 and that's, I mean, I don't know how much of the inpatient order sets you see, but for nursing, um, because so many of us do take care of borders, um, all all of the patients that have any kind of pain um, protocol, pain management, naloxone, uh, Narcan is is a PRN order, and there's different doses based on like how how much they're not breathing, um, and 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 that's and that to me is just like it didn't used to be like that, but you know now people, you know that that's part of the pain management protocol, so it's something to be aware of. That's actually crazy because my concern is then I'll be, I'll be, I would challenge the validity of any protocol. If you already put in naloxone in, you already know that whatever you put in there dosing-wise, it's inappropriately high 
it's inaccurate. And it's already basically stating that I'm probably going to have this patient not breathing well. So I'm already looking forward to getting ready with naloxone. This is not right. This is one of the several reasons the hydromorpho should not be used routinely or even at all as a first-line defense when it comes to opioid analgesia. I'm a firm believer that morphine represents the better balance of safety analgesic efficacy in comparison to hydromorphone and fentanyl. And that should be default opioid of choice throughout the entire hospital, every single department, including, and I'm not afraid to say it, hemonc patients. Actually, <laughs> actually, out of all of the patient population, the hemonc patients are the ones that I typically don't ask for hydromorphone. <laughs> um, so I, I, I think they, you're on to something there. <laughs> but isn't it irony in this statement? The reason, the very reason the hydromorphone was actually discovered, we're talking about 1932. It was for patients with intractable cancer pain who can, couldn't tolerate side effects related to the higher dose of opioids. They were taking 300, 400 morphine milligram equivalents on a daily basis. And they were having intractable nausea. They were having intolerable pruritus. And that's what hydromorphone came in into the game based on its potency, specifically for cancer-related and painful conditions. So now you're telling me that cancer patients actually said, no, we'll be good. We're happy with morphine or fentanyl lollipops or patches. And now non-opioid, uh, I'm sorry, non-cancer-related painful syndromes are being just hydromorphona kill it <laughs> exactly no that's exactly i mean at least that's what i see in my shop yeah i mean like most people they're just like you know i'm good with my um uh, you know my series of different medications they might use like gabapentin they might use um you know some other um kind of like some psych medications and then um and then they're like you know i just do either oxycodone or morphine tablets of 30 milligrams 15 milligrams i'm good <laughs> uh, but you know, <laughs> you know, and, 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 and they are, they're, they're fine. They're like, you know, it's pain, but it's something I'm tolerable with. But then I have, you know, other populations where I, I gave four milligrams of hydromorphone and it, you know, they're, they're just not coming out of it. And, and so then it makes me think, okay, maybe we need to, um, change our approach to other patient populations. So we did it well for um, the cancer patients, the oncology patients. But what about these other patients, sickle cell patients, the abdominal patients, Crohn's, ulcerative colitis? Um, maybe we're missing um, that multiple modality that the onc patients are receiving. I think we do. And once again, I'm going to reiterate, we touch bases on this phenomenon. I'm not going to do much into details in the first part of our uh, recording is that the longer you use opioids, the more chances, almost 100%, you're going to develop at some level of your treatment, a phenomenon called hyperalgesia, which means you will require more opioids for seem to be innocuous, painful condition, which will ultimately lead to demand of more opioids and subsequent development of tolerance dependence on addiction. So by default, you can expect a patient with a chronic non-cancer pain who are in constant use of an opioid, the hyperalgesic, and they're constantly requiring higher dose, higher dose, higher dose, just to seem to be offsetting this phenomenon. Specifically with hydromorphone, there are two things that are very important to bring up since we have in this amazing venue. Hydromorphone is 10 times more lipophilic than morphine. What does lipophilicity translates from clinical perspectives? Hydromorphine penetrates blood 
blood-brain barrier significantly faster and saturates mu receptor at much greater extent instantaneously. In practically, it translates into euphoria. You get this initial kick, initial high. And that's what people like to use hydromorphone, especially when you do intravenous push dose. That push dose gives you this initial kick and you feel, wow, I am in heaven. High morphine, in turn, has significant overlap of felicity. It tra transduces through blood-brain barrier slowly, saturates receptors slowly. That's why before you get to euphoria, you actually start having nausea, vomiting, and you become dysphoric. You're not feeling well. That's why from abuse potential, hydromorphone is having significantly higher rates of abuse, liability, and likability in comparison to morphine. I'm really glad you explained that because I think that is another component of hydromorphone that people forget uh, when, they're when they're prescribing uh, hydromorphone. Now, um, I have not figured this out yet, but how is it that some patients know to also ask for Benadryl IV push? To go with oh, our hydromorphone. I am so happy you brought this up. So the traditional thinking and teaching is that hydromorphone at higher dose, which has been studied, anything higher than 1.5 to 2 milligram, will be associated with pruritus. Initial studies show that 1 milligram or less than 1, we have less pruritus than morphine, which is not partially true, because morphine and hydromorphone both releases histamine. And morphine probably at a uh, greater extent. However, not everybody understands that pruritus, opioid-induced pruritus, it's centrally mediated, and it's directly related to activation of the mu receptors in about 85 to 90% of the cases, which means in 10% of the cases, it may be histamine, but Benadryl, diphenhydramine will be helpful. Problem with diphenhydramine, you give sedative on top of sedative analgesics such as hydromorphone, which will make your patients even more loopier or even comatose. And frankly, in about 90% of cases, it doesn't work. Since diphenhydramine is anticholinergic, the very first subjective feeling when you get from diphenhydramine is actually high. So high from hydromorphone combined with a high from diphenhydramine, you get double high, and life is really good for you. Subsequently to it, you become loopier, more sits, uh, altered. And on top of respiratory depression, you got CNS depression, which is double take from diphenhydramine and hydromorphone, and now we have an issue with respiratory system and CNS system. If you ought to use, or if you're concerned about the patients who are suffering from opioid-induced pruritus, you need to use ultra-low dose of naloxone, and we're talking about 0.1 to 0.25 mics per kilo per hour. If you use this dose, you will maintain patients with respect to their analgesic efficacy on the level when they are, which means you don't disturb their painful uh, relief, relief of their painful conditions, but pruritus will go away. So do not combine hydromorphone with diphenhydramine. Yeah, it's it's really awful. Um, and I've, I've actually had patients come in to request, I want um, that medication that starts with a D, two milligrams, and Benadryl, 50 milligrams IV push. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually had patients um, demand that. And um, I mean, so, okay, so now let's say you do have patients that are kind of like on that end of the spectrum and, you know, they, they, they do have a high tolerance for opioids. Is, would we be able to like, are, are those patients kind of like a lost cause? Like, are, can we use multiple 
modalities for them? Or are they just not going to get any benefit from that because they're so used to the high uh, opioid levels? Well, for these patients, it's not just can or can we not. I think it's a must at this point. And specifically based on their uh, pathophysiology behind it, they need to be weaned off an opioid. They're in this hyperalgesic, chronic opioid tolerant state that no matter what you're going to do afterwards, nothing's going to work. The increase in dose of an opioid will be associated with the worsening side effects not improvement in pain. And everybody knows that, including patients. So that's what non-opioid analgesic modalities and different interventions come into the place. And it's lidocaine, and there's sub-disassociative dose ketamine, and there are a little bit of NSAIDs, maybe there is a blockade, maybe there's a topicals, maybe there's a physical therapy, and this goes on and on and on, including some, although there is a great deal of controversy, some alternative or complementary type of medicine and such. But for people with a chronic opioid use, or opioid use disorder, even if you're getting further, they really need to have a conversation with respect to process of weaning off counseling, acknowledging they're suffering from the disease, such an addiction, and start using non-opioid analgesic modalities to get them back on track. And then let's say for the reverse, um, patients who, you know, don't have a chronic issue, but, um, or maybe they just have like some acute pain situation going on. Uh, obviously, hydromorphone should not be your first line of medication for pain relief. But what are there some instances where, okay, so you give like, you know, a little bit of morphine and then um, at what point do you just start saying, you know what, let's just try some multiple modalities um, to try to, I mean, do you actively just try to prevent giving hydromorphone for acute patients? Well, at this point, it's not just a matter of me preventing it. I am reserving hydromorphone only for patients with a intractable pain related to their cancer that are requiring breakthrough pain. And that's what I go with hydromorphone, even though I'm not ordering myself. As you mentioned earlier, we are hydromorphine-free ED. We've been hydromorphine-free ED for the past two years. We do not prescribe hydromorphone for any type of pain syndrome with exception of the chronic uh, cancer pain, even though we're not even prescribing ourselves. We contact palliative care and they do themselves. Our sickle cell patients are benefited from multimodal approach that includes intranasal or nebulized fentanyl or in nebulized morphine at triage if you need to. We use subcutaneous morphine. We use subcutaneous or intravenous subdisorbed ketamine. And we use NSAIDs and different analgesic modalities and such. We do not use hydromorphone, period. And your sickle cell patients are um, walking out of your ED as a discharge? So some patients, we are able to succeed with respect to discharging them mm-hmm. on uh, actually surprisingly on uh, subcutaneous morphine because nothing we can talk about issue with the intramuscular injection, chronic repetitive injection of opioids into somebody's muscles. Those who need to get admitted, then there's a dilemma because ultimately they ended up going on the floor and they get, IV and they get PCA hydromorphone and everything I've done in DD goes to garbage and I'm very, I'm, I'm always emotional. I'm getting a little irritated when it happens. We do succeed at times. The hardest part is to have a conversation with the patient with a sickle cell disease, for example, to convince them that there's a different analgesic modalities. Once they know we don't give hydromorphine, no matter what they say, then they opt in for morphine. And then for the fact that morphine may not work. And then I'm slowly finessing the idea. Maybe we should try something else. You know, and technically, if we're talking about this, you can give ketamine subcutaneously. 
There's a great deal of literature supporting use of subcutaneous injection, infusion, even continuous infusion of subcutaneous subdesidose ketamine should you not have an IV accesses. Same with morphine. Skin is the largest organ in the body. It works fantastic. It takes a longer to kick in, but once you're in, you're in, right? So there's a way of, of helping them. You know, we're not ready for opioid-free sickle cell of crisis pain management. I don't think we need to. See, opioid-free, it's a, such a misnomer. We should not be aiming ever. We should be aiming for the safe, judicious, and right way of using opioids for our patients. Opioids are indicated for sickle cell patients. We just need to figure out which one is right, which one is safer. We should use more effective, less euphoric, less addictive, that should be combined with non-opioid analgesic modalities. Right. And, and I think also, um, I think for me, probably like the biggest thing is we often fail to just have like, like you said, just, just a conversation with the patient. Um, you know, and it's kind of like a shared decision model, right? So it's like, okay, you know, how are you feeling? And like, just have that like common goal with your patient as to what, at what point is your pain tolerable? And also to manage expectations. And I, I think that's like probably the biggest problem. We have um, so much pressure to, to say, you know, are, were you pain-free? I think it's a very unfair question, um, at least for practitioners, um, for, you know, physicians and nurses and other providers um, to say, you know, not only like, did you address the person's pain? Yes, I addressed the patient's pain. But, you know, were you able to get that patient to be pain free? And I don't think that's actually a fair question. Because, I mean, let's say you have a complete uh, fracture, there is no way that person is going to be pain free unless they're completely out and intubated. Um, because they're just not aware. But if someone's going to be awake, there's going to be pain. You had surgery. You're going to have you're going to have post you know pain post op, um, and that's something that I I don't know what happened in like the last so ever many decades, but the expectations are unrealistic. Oh my God! Everything you just said it's such a music to my ears. This is such an important component which I've been pushing and promulgating and teaching for so long. The shared decision-making, and specifically as a point towards setting up realistic expectation, is a must. And the pain relief in the emergency department, especially with acute pain, should be based on a functional restoration or functional improvement. We should not be using pain scale. We're using it for the assessment, for the documentation, fine. We should never be asking patients on the scale, on the number, and this is so inhumane. It's humiliating and it's debilitating. Functional improvement or restoration. An example is if patient comes in prone on a gurney, you set them up, you've achieved what you needed to. If they came in on a wheelchair and you're able to stand them up with your therapeutic maneuvers, analgesia-wise, you're good. And the question is, is this level of pain acceptable that you're ready, you're willing to take and go back to your daily activities? And that's how we need to treat patients, exactly what you said. Zero pain or pain-free, it's unrealistic. And frankly, it's harmful. If we will follow the zero of pain or pain-free condition, we will load patients with a necessary amount of analgesics that will end up having side effects and we're going to be in trouble. And patients are going to be in trouble. No. Functional improvement. Doc, I feel pain, but I feel better. I think I can move. I want to go home. And if it can be eight, we can be seven on a scale zero to 10. It's irrelevant, the number. What's relevant is, are they ready to go back to the daily activities? And if you achieve that, the functional improvement, this is it. 
Yeah. And and I don't know, like, I don't know why um, that has gone away. Um, it's like, you know, when you're a kid, you learn how to ride a bike. You will fall off that bicycle and it hurts. I mean, most of us growing up didn't even get Tylenol. <laughs> it's just like, here's some ice or just get back on the bicycle. And, you know, you'll you'll be sore for a couple of days, but you'll be fine. Um, now, you had, uh, let's say you had your appendix removed. And I mean, I remember I did a uh, rotation up in the PACU and somebody had his appendix removed. And this is where I really learned about pain management. So, you know, we're required to say, um, uh, like, what is your what is your pain? Zero for no pain. Ten is like the maximum amount of pain. Now, somebody just came out of surgery, <laughs> had their appendix removed. Of course, their pain is going to be 10 out of 10. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's just like, I mean, you don't need to have any healthcare training to know that. But then, then it becomes, okay, well, what are, what is the patient's expectation? And are you as the practitioner or hospital system or healthcare, are you saying, Hey, you're going to get surgery. You're going to get your appendix removed. And guess what? When you get out, your pain is going to be zero. It's unrealistic. So I remember I asked the question and I said, hey, you know, um, how's your pain? Because we obviously want to manage pain. Um, And he's like, 10. I said, okay, well, you just got morphine 10 minutes ago or 15, 20 minutes ago. And um, did the pain go down a little bit? Yeah, but it's still really painful. Okay, well, you did just come out of surgery and they removed your appendix. Okay, so it's a eight out of 10. Do you feel like this is something that you can handle right now? Or do you feel like you need a little bit more pain, pain medication? And then when I asked that question, that was when the answer changed. That was when they said, you know what? It's painful. And I understand that I, I came out of surgery, but I'm okay for right now. I think that moment was how I changed how I asked questions in terms of like, are you feeling like, like how to manage pain? I don't think the number system works at all. Oh, I agree with you hundred percent. And the beautiful thing, what you brought up and I just want to reiterate that the natural trajectory of a painful condition, you just had a surgery, you had a broken leg, you were, you were shot, you have a stab wound, whatever it got to hurt. And there is no way in the world I can do this otherwise. Patient just needs to understand that they come in, obviously expectations are unrealistic, but they need to be educated. The natural trajectory of the painful syndrome and expectation that they're going to last two, three, four days, no matter what I do, whether or not I give you medication or not, once they get to it, things are going to be completely better and easier for all of us. Right. And I think um, the education is not just for, you know, the patients and how they want to rate themselves on some arbitrary uh, pain scale. But I think it's also, um, it's on us um, as practitioners to understand how to ask the questions as well. And, and also to, you know, remind ourselves that, hey, this person just went through whatever um, and there should be expected pain. And that's okay. <laughs> if they're okay with having a little bit of pain, uh, like I twisted my knee the other day, I'm okay with having the pain. I, I don't need to necessarily have Tylenol, Motrin, or Percocet or anything like that. Um, but I know it's there and it's going to go away. Um, I think that's something maybe 
practitioners need to keep in mind as well. Oh, definitely. You know, education on behalf of practitioner, on behalf of patient, on behalf of I know, department and frankly, society. It's a very, very important thing. You know, we do stroke awareness. We do heart attack awareness. We do anaphylaxis awareness. There are campaigns, there are funding, there are everything else. But then when it comes to pain and, you know, 85% of patients come into the emergency department on annual basis having pain as a chief complaint, 85% of those. We take 13 million people seen in the ED, 85%, but about 10 million people with pain. And we don't seem to be vested enough or vested enough into taking time to tell, talk to patients about everything you just said. Shared decision-making, expectations, natural trajectory, analgesics, side effects, benefits, risks, a list goes on and on and on. We kind of need to reconsider or retort ourselves with respect to what we do and how we approach patients in pain. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I think this is a good spot to end. Uh, do you have anything else you want to add for your hydromorphone-free emergency department? <laughs> well let's put this way my favorite expression is and it's my mentor mentioned earlier his name is dr nelson every attempt should be made to keep opioid naive patients opioid naive so i would add to it keep opioid naive patients hydromorphone naive do not routinely use hydromorphone in dd on the ward reserve hydromorphone in situations when patients are suffering from intractable, multi-analgesic resistant painful condition and when the benefits of using hydromorphone outweigh the risks. And if you ought to use hydromorphone, use on significantly lower dose than you're accustomed to use. Thank you so much, Sergey. Yonse, thank you so much for having me. That was a blast. I truly, truly enjoyed doing this. You're welcome. Uh, I'm sure listeners will be really happy to hear what you have to say and this, this conversation was nice because we're talking about something that's kind of almost going against the grain because we're so used to it. It's like we were forced to use hydromorphone and um, maybe we need to like just step back and take a look at what we're doing and, and see um, is there a better way? And, and I think that there is. So I wholeheartedly agree with you. There is. If there's not, we should find one. You've just listened to an episode of the Recess Nurse Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Yunsi Dursa. Check out the website, recessnurse.com, for show notes, a place to leave your comments, and start a conversation. You can also follow me on iTunes, Twitter, and Facebook. 